This is Check Yourself, a collaborative podcast brought to you by the Community Health Education Center, so check, aimed at helping you live your best life. I'm Leah Burkhart, and today we have Kelly Perosa. Kelly is the program director at an organization called Liberty House, a group that's made it their mission to prevent, assess, and treat children who are victims of abuse and neglect. Kelly is a powerhouse of energy, information, and most of all, heart. Engaging in this kind of work frequently leaves folks feeling disenchanted and disheartened. Not Kelly. Kelly is nimble, brave, willing to try new things, willing to make mistakes. I think the only thing Kelly seems unwilling to do is give up. She's one of those people who, once she puts her mind to something, is tenacious, while also fiercely compassionate. In our talk, she discusses the real cost, both emotional and financial, of child abuse. She also describes the work Liberty House is engaged in to reduce the prevalence of that abuse. For example, they not only assess children, but they also provide preventative tools for families. Beyond that, they keep their finger on the pulse of changing times. Their newest project, for example, I Respect and Protect, speaks to the way social media and online platforms are causing new and previously unforeseen challenges for children and their mental health. I came away from this conversation with a whole new understanding of just how widespread these challenges are, but also with a sense of hope. Hope for what Liberty House and organizations like it are doing to help. So without any further delay, I bring you Kelly Perosa. Kelly Perosa here with Liberty House. Welcome. Thank you. Lovely to have you. Um, I'd love to start with you and just kind of go into who are you? What is your role? Like, who are you? What do you do? The, the My, standard. <laughs> a very brief elevator introduction, yes, right? right? Exactly. Um, yeah, so again, my name is Kelly Prosa. I am the Prevention Program Director at Liberty House here in Salem. Mm-hmm. I have been there six years. Before that, for 30 years, I was an educator in many roles in schools, from uh, classroom teacher to school administrator to swim coach. Um, so I've worked with children all my life. Um, I'm really thankful that after retirement, I found my way to a place where I could bring that skill set of being an educator um, into a space that um, was looking for some growth, which is was how mm-hmm. I fell into the prevention um, director role. and. And the last piece of that, I wish that I had known what I've learned at Liberty House when I had been in the classroom all those years. It would have made that experience for my students and myself just, um, it would have been a different lens for me to be supportive to them. So, Oh, yeah, so I can imagine. Well, that's actually a, a great segue because mm-hmm. uh, you said, you know, I wish I had known what I learned at Liberty House. So... Can you tell me a little, I'm an alien from outer space, or I'm a newbie who's coming in. I have no idea what Liberty House is. Mm -hmm. Help me out. What is Liberty House? So Liberty House is the Child Abuse Assessment Center serving Marion and Polk County. 
What that means is that if there's a concern of child abuse or neglect, we are there to help that child express the experience that they have um, had in their life in a very safe and um, more than just child-friendly environment. Mm-hmm. And um, the, it's very important that we create that environment um, for them, which we'll talk about in a, in a little bit here. But um, because children don't often talk about the hard things they've been experiencing, especially if it's child abuse. Mm-hmm. And child abuse is a crime. And so we need to hear what that child has been experiencing in the right way so that the right actions can be taken in the best interest of that child so that they're safe. Um, We also have um, uh, child-focused trauma-informed counselors. We have eight of them serving children in our Hope and Wellness Services. Mm -hmm. Um, We also have two counselors for adult survivors of childhood trauma, um, as well as prevention services. So we've been in existence for, uh, well, since 1999. So 21 years. Um, We've expanded greatly in the last um, five or six years. Mm-hmm. We serve about 1,200 families a year in just our direct services, and then prevention services is, um, it's hard to keep track of how many people have attended some prevention education over the last three years. Yeah, I can imagine. Mm-hmm. How, so if I'm the child in question, how would I come to you? How would I even know to get access to your services? Right. So this becomes a complicated answer a little bit because when school was in session, Mm -hmm. um, many, many reports of child abuse come into the uh, DHS, Child Welfare, Child Abuse Hotline, Mm -hmm. which I'm going to pause and give that number to you, which is Mm -hmm. 855-503-SAFE. So that's a hotline that's managed by Department of Human Services, Child Welfare. So when school was in session, most of the calls of concern for kids came into that hotline from school teachers, from people that were working with children. It could be from a parent directly, it could be from a neighbor, anybody can make a report to that hotline. But most of the calls came in from what we call mandatory reporters. And um, that, that those are the people that are, they're medical providers, mm-hmm. they are, uh, again, teachers, coaches. Um, and so those calls come into DHS and that puts something in action. Because again, as I mentioned, child abuse is a crime. And so there, the, there's sort of this checklist, if you will, really simplify it, mm-hmm. of, of listening to what that report is about, obviously getting things like the child's name, where the child lives, the details of what the caller is concerned about. Mm-hmm. And then that puts into motion how to uh, investigate that, mm-hmm. which might mean, um, uh, well, eventually will mean calling law enforcement, mm-hmm. which includes police, sheriffs, um, Oregon State Police just depends. Sometimes the FBI even. I'm also um, thinking of social services. Social services, okay. which is again what child welfare, what we kind of put under the umbrella of child welfare. Ah, okay. So, and then the third arm of that. So our partners are DHS, law enforcement, and then Liberty House is the medical arm of that investigation, if mm-hmm. you will. So the kids that come to us generally are referred through DHS, child services. Mm-hmm. They might be referred directly from law enforcement. Mm-hmm. 
very rarely somebody calls Liberty House directly and says, I need help, and we help put things into motion. We are still going to be in communication with DHS and law enforcement, Mm -hmm. but primarily all the calls come to us through the DHS um, services. So when somebody calls that hotline number, 855-503-SAFE, they are the ones that instigate whether that uh, child should be assessed at an assessment center. There are 21 assessment centers in the state of Oregon. We're part of a child advocacy center network in the state. Mm -hmm. So whichever county that they live in, they're assigned to a specific um, assessment center, Mm. a child advocacy center. We all have the same model. Some of us are larger. Marion County is pretty big. Um, Some of them are small. You know, uh, McMinnville has uh, the Yamhill assessment center. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so it, it's a it's complicated, but it's as simple as if you have concerns for a child, pick up the phone and dial that number. Uh-huh. 855-503-SAFE. Excellent. Well, I, excellent information. Yes, thank you. I'm not I'm certainly not trying to say, gee, I'm so glad this is a problem, but I am certainly very grateful that this is a resource for those who otherwise would have nowhere to go. And we have, um, we live in a good state for this. The state mandated back in 1998, I think, maybe, Mm. um, that these assessment centers need to happen. And so we work, actually the district attorney of Marion County is the one that Mm -hmm. um, really is is kind of the one overseeing all the assessment centers in in the each DA in each county oversees the assessment center in their county. Some places we needed to combine. Polk County is a smaller county, um, but we work the same way um, with a multidisciplinary team. That's what I was referring to, DHS, law enforcement, and the assessment center. So we have an MDT team in Salem or mm-hmm. um, for Marion County, and we have one in Polk County, uh, ah. maybe in Dallas. So we're busy when it comes to coordinating all that. Um, mm-hmm. Something to mention, Leah, is that um, the call center gets over 10,000 calls a month. Oh. And so when we talk about systems, uh-huh. <laughs> it, can, it can get overwhelming, can get frustrating. Um, but I think we need to hear those numbers to understand. There are people concerned, even during a pandemic when eyes are not on kids like they used to be, The call center is still busy. The calls have dropped dramatically. The assessment centers are still busy. So the calls have dropped dramatically, but the assessment centers are still busy. Mm -hmm. Does that just mean that the, uh, I don't know the term that I'm really looking for. It's um, conversion rate. So is it more that that maybe the call volume is lower, but of those who are calling, it just seems like there's a larger proportion that really are problematic? Or is it the case that the calls went down and even though the assessment centers are busy, they're not quite as busy? So yes and no and yes kind of is my response there. So um, last year, which actually our most recent numbers are for 2019, we're always a year behind in reporting our numbers. So Uh in 2019, the confirmed number of cases of child abuse in the state of Oregon were over 13,000. So when I say 10,000 calls a month to the call center, multiply that by 12, 120,000, and when we narrow it down to actual confirmed cases. Mm -hmm. So um, the calls may be down, but that doesn't mean that the cases aren't as needing the proper assessment for that. And quite honestly, during a pandemic, those calls, the, the assessments that we've seen at Liberty House have been 
heartbreaking um, yeah. when, you know, we don't talk about things in detail because we understand that, first of all, we're talking about a human child, a family that's been affected by this. But when um, folks are, um, you know, hearing on the news or whatever and they, they see this process, we need to understand how, how big this issue is, yeah. how complicated it is to get to a place of being able to get the right people in place to assess what's going on in that child's life. So during a pandemic, those calls have been harder for us to assess in terms of what we're seeing is um, it's a lot harder on our staff um, because there's just a lot of stress out there right now. And that unfortunately um, is reflected in the cases we see at Liberty House. Yeah, what kinds of resources are put in place for those taking those calls, if any? Mm. Is it, you know, is it is that something that's built into the system as well to keep those folks taken care of? So I can't comment on what how DHS workers oh, are sure. supported. I'm yeah. not really sure. Um, for Liberty House staff um, mm-hmm. and anyone in the network, we have lots of resources. So for our staff, we have a, you know, EAP program, which a lot of mm-hmm. employers put that in place, and we are constantly encouraging people. Mm-hmm. We have a lot of peer review that happens so that um, they can come together and talk with their peers in other CACs um, mm-hmm. about how did you know how, how did this one go for you? Um, we try to be um, as trauma informed in our day to day interactions with each other sure. um, to just give space for whatever we have to experience to you know put that where it needs to go. Mm-hmm. Um, having counselors on staff now has really helped because that's like <laughs> yeah. a quick lunchroom check-in. Um, and all of leadership, anybody who's a supervisor, um, gets a lot of um, coaching on how to keep an eye out for things on our staff is when things are just getting hard. Um, yeah. It's not the right calling for everybody. Right. Um, uh, quite honestly, I am uh, in prevention services because that's where I guess I'm called to be. But mm-hmm. um, I don't, uh, as much as I've been child focused in my career the whole time, I'm not the right person to work with the kiddos that are in our clinic. I, see. I am loud. I want to hug everybody. <laughs> I am the one who's like the coach type of person. That most kids that come to us, that's not what they need. They need somebody who just waits for that that, that child to give us the lead on what kind of personality they need in that moment mm-hmm. of trying to express what they have been experiencing. Makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Which leads me to, so, you know, let's say there's the child in question, a call has been made, and it's become clear that this child needs an assessment, needs to come in. So if I'm the child, what is the is that what is that experience like for me? And obviously not the details, but maybe the logistics. Yeah. So the logistics are there's a lot of phone calling between our intake office and all the the folks that are trying to help. That could be to a, a social worker who ha- is um, working with the family. Some of those kids, um, actually, more the majority of our children. I think the last time I knew the number is about 68 percent mm-hmm. have already in foster care. And I want to I want to footnote that statement. Mm-hmm. The reason that so many kids that we see come from foster care is because those children have been removed from a situation that was, you know, suspected to be unsafe. Mm-hmm. And those children finally get into a place where they feel safe enough to talk. So there's a lot of disclosures in foster care that happen, which is why that number is high for us. It's not that children in foster care 
are not safe is that they we were removed from an unsafe situation and then that they disclosed to their foster parents. So an important piece to know about foster care, and I'm not here to, to <laughs> unravel foster care, but that that's, that's I want to explain why our numbers are high there. So we're our intake is um, our folks are always talking to the people who are uh, social workers. They might be talking to law enforcement to kind of get a little information. We are neutral and objective. Mm -hmm. All CACs have to create a situation where we are not here to make a recommendation for that child. We're there to gather information about that child's experience. Mm -hmm. And so the child, we work really hard to make sure the adults in that child's life understand what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. And then I'll tell you what happens. So when a child comes to Liberty House, um, my office used to be outside the parking lot, and we just create a, a, a sort of this hula hoop or more a <laughs> bubble of safety we don't we aren't out in the parking lot in the morning we do, when we are, when we know that a child might be coming we stagger their appointments so they're not running into another family that's coming or leaving mm -hmm. i don't want to be out there i was a teacher for 30 years i might run into a family that whose child that i taught wow. um, so we want to just really create this secure space for them when they come in they they are welcomed by somebody who um, can greet them in their own language mm -hmm. um, so on staff we have um, bilingual bicultural in spanish if they have a requirement just like any other medical provider to have uh, if they have another language that they're more comfortable and we are required to hire somebody who can um, you know greet them in their own language um, so all that's arranged they also see teddy bears and homemade quilts and people that are smiling and what I used to watch in the window when I would take a little peek is kids that just would come in in that body language that is you know the teens would have their hoods up the other kids might be holding the coat of a, a person walking them in that may or may not be their mother and maybe a caregiver maybe a DHS worker mm -hmm. and so they go in and they are taken to a playroom so there's things to play with in that space Space, and that's where they meet the people that they'll be talking to a medical provider specially mm -hmm. trained this is a subspecialty of pediatrics uh -huh. um, they'll meet the forensic interviewer the person they're going to be talking to they mm -hmm. actually even call it the talking room and uh, they might meet Eli our facility dog mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and they will meet a family support specialist who's there to help the family if they realize they are not living in a safe situation perhaps and they need to figure out how am I going to get out of uh, where I'm living so mm -hmm. sometimes the whole family needs some support like that and then the child is given a tour with the family with those providers um, through so they understand what they're going to be getting into mm -hmm. and then they sort of choose how the day is going to go and mm -hmm. generally it starts with a medical exam um, which is a wellness check for most kids um, mm -hmm. there there are times when sometimes evidence is collected um, but a lot of times like I said there's a lag between the call of concern and when we see that child is not um, you know there's we can get into later how those things that happen on the weekends or after five o'clock how do we address those kiddos yeah. um, but then uh, and then they go into the talking room where they're shown cameras and the microphones um, so, so they understand they're going to be recorded uh -huh. and they also look at the observation room where they can see the you know they'll, they'll leave a you know a juice box or something on the table in the interview room and then they'll go and say see that's where the camera is looking at right there and so mm -hmm. what an empowering thing for a child who what their experience may have been is never being given a voice yeah. who's lived with shame and guilt for we don't know how long 
um, it's just an amazing experience to then watch them leave mm -hmm. after what it could we allow four hours for an assessment sometimes kids have to come back they're just not ready to talk other times they're done in an hour <laughs> just depends on the kiddo um, but I, I often see kids leaving Liberty House skipping oh. <laughs> um, holding a bear you know they've got a blanket as a cape because they got a quilt and so mm -hmm. that's a neat thing to see um, and of course, I'm, I'm picturing the parts that make me smile, but it, it does happen quite often that kiddos just have this relief, yes. just this sense. And of course, it's a relief because you're done with that moment, but also it's like, wow, they heard me there. Mm -hmm. I feel better because I got to talk with them. So that assessment is really the first part of intervention and a first step of journey to healing. Because mm -hmm. I do want to uh, talk about a lot of folks, we watch TV, the child is saved, you know, uh -huh. on whatever our, you know, crime series that we like <laughs> to watch or whatever. Oh, they got the child, everything's fine. And that we really need to understand it's not, that the yeah. first step is that intervention and stopping the hurt. Uh -huh. But then we talk about children being resilient. Mm -hmm. And the message that I want to make about that is that children find their resilience with support, mm -hmm. just like adults. We find that uh, our path to resiliency mm -hmm. because we have the right support along the way. And that's why we have Hope and Wellness Services. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking of a really close friend of mine who, uh, she has a, a son, and y you can imagine. And she's also an educator. So mm -hmm. naturally, her go-to is, I'm going to absorb all of the information imaginable about raising a healthy, happy, resilient child. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and she saw something somewhere. She wasn't able to tell me where the quote came from. But in essence, it was a, a person who speaks of children and their welfare and says, you know, it's really extraordinary. Children can be fabulously resilient, and they really only need to be able to answer this question. Is there one adult in your life who, if you were in pain, if you felt scared, if you, that you trust to be able, that you know for sure they would have your best interest. They, 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 would, they care enough about you that they want you to thrive. And what was surprising was that the answers were not always, you know, mom or dad or uncle. And some, obviously, in many cases, those were named as well. But sometimes it was, you know, it was, it's Mrs. Jones, my third grade teacher. And in one instance, the, the, the speaker said it was a surprise because she was known as being a pretty strict teacher. Mm -hmm. And, but she was consistent and reliable. And so the, and the kid knew somehow, even when the, you know, teacher is reprimanding him that, yeah, well, I was being a pain in the butt. Yeah. <laughs> but she was reprimanding. I, I couldn't rely on her for that. Right. But it's, it's really extraordinary to think it really, is there one person on this planet that you know, beyond a doubt, cares about you? And if the answer is yes, and they can name them, sometimes that's enough. And we, as parents, we can't um, expect to hear our names. We want to, of sure. course. And just thank you, because that's what our whole prevention department is about, is like helping us have the conversation as parents with our kids about that very topic. I just love that you <laughs> brought that up. And um, helping, asking our kids from an early age, who are the safe grown-ups in your life? And maybe it's a you know, older cousin or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then helping those ad safe adults, you know, understand what are some appropriate ways of interacting with kids so that you're not setting these kids up to think that all adults are, you know, yeah. are safe to get in the car with. No, nope, they're not. 
<laughs> or you know be alone with or whatever so um, that's just beautiful thank you for that I love yeah. parents that are doing their research <laughs> yeah I know right <laughs> and it's nice to consider too and this is something I, I think that gentleman was Sam Harris but I don't mm. remember but it was a speaker uh, an intellectual who said you know and a neuroscientist who mm. said you know parents need to know that their job is both meaningless and extremely meaningful you know your job as a parent is not to try and create a human that's functional and thriving and doing all it's to help your child be who they are mm -hmm. which requires this crazy combination of Complete hands off of I don't know, kid. You're in the driver's seat. You gotta you gotta help me out. While at the same time, perpetually being there for when they fall and and for or when they need that support. And so what he was trying to do was give compassion to parents in yes. essence, and say you know if you're if you're trying never take all of the credit for all of your mm -hmm. like how your kid turns out, but also don't ever take all of the blame. Right. I used to tell parents when I was in the classroom. Um, parent becoming a, a mother for me was that moment where I realized oh this is like the hardest job I've ever had uh -huh. <laughs> at the same time it's the best job I ever had <laughs> and so you know I kind of somehow wrapped that around um, to and communicated that to parents like this is the best job we've ever had but I have never worked this hard <laughs> so, so um, yeah it's and and we want to be able to help those parents that you know and during a pandemic is a perfect time to bring it up we have a lot of stresses in our life mm -hmm. as adults we communicate that um, what we haven't talked so much about is the trauma that our children are taking on during this pandemic. Yeah, so yes. in our area alone, they have seen, you know, a, a pandemic starting in March. Huh. We had wildfires in our areas. People lost their homes. School was closed. There was no camaraderie except through the internet. And what we were dragged on, dragged into mm -hmm. on the internet as kids with, with our parents thinking, um, they're trying to solve, you know, walk through their own path right now and journey of figuring it out during a pandemic. So it's like, okay, at least they're they're doing their schoolwork on their <laughs> Google Chrome doc, you know, device. But then we had a contentious election. Then we had, um, you know, we had an ice storm here that really triggered people. Some people were out of power for, you know, two weeks. I heard, and that's just. And, and it's not where are the parents, it's like how are the parents? Are they asking their kids, how are the kids? Do we have those avenues for having those conversations? So we need to really have uh, being aware of what are the long-term consequences of this pandemic. But we might get to that in a minute here. I want to talk well, more about long-term consequences of child abuse. Okay. You can kind of, <laughs> I want to be sure we put that in here. Sure, well, I'll go if, ahead. If Why you don't, don't mind, not yeah, at all. So, um, I'm going to simplify a little for the purposes of time, and if we think we have more time, we can go back and do that. So yeah. there are extreme long-term consequences, and so I'm going to start with the cost, okay. because people understand money sometimes, mm -hmm. unfortunately. And so the CDC estimates an average cost, lifelong cost, of um, uh, a child abuse case is over $200,000 per case. So I did a little math before I came, and I thought, well, what was that then in that year of uh, where the, the statistic was over 1,200 for us? And it was, okay, where? I wrote it down. I just did this. And I can also bust out a calculator, too. So that's Bust easy. out that calculator. Oh, Get right. on your cell phone. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Get it. But it's, it's um, jarring when you... Um, so you said it was 1,200... Over 1,200. So our cases last year were 1,238 in Marion County alone. So we're talking about 300 million plus. Yeah. 
per yeah for, for a, year. a year's worth of confirmed child abuse cases in our county. What, just in the county? That's just our county. Whoa. So um, I'm not, you know, of course, not every child abuse case has those kinds of needs. But when you look at lost wages, when you look at mental health care, the long-term health consequences have been related to not just mental health, but um, there's an increase in COPD, in diabetes, in high blood pressure. Mm -hmm. So without the intervention mm -hmm. um, of good counseling to get those kiddos to resiliency, which costs money. <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> and how do we get that? And, and is there for them as support throughout their life if needed because kids that have been abused um, let me really quickly and very simply, while kids experience long-term abuse, mm -hmm. which many of our children that we see have, and long-term may be months, it may be years, and it could be neglect, it could be physical abuse, it could be sexual abuse. What happens in their brain when they live in that environment <clears throat> is that everything goes to the back of their brain, to their amygdala. Somebody who's a professional will go, she doesn't even say amygdala, right? But, um, <laughs> so, um, so all of their energy goes back to that emotional center of their brain. How am I going to get through this? How am I going to survive? How am I not going to make that person mad and get them riled up because then it might result in something really ugly for me? So what happens in, as they're fo focused there, their problem-solving feature up here, the executive function of their brain right here on the temporal lobe, mm -hmm. goes dark. We have a slide that I show of this, mm -hmm. of like a healthy six-year-old brain and a brain of a child who's experienced, been in the midst of uh, huge neglect. It's just dark. So that problem-solving piece on those little kiddos' brains ceases to function. And that can last a while, even after they've been removed from that abusive situation. Sure. So that therapy is a place to help that brain heal. We, that's what we mean about kids being resilient, is that they can heal from this. Mm -hmm. They cannot do it alone. They cannot do it because they have a well-meaning pastor or a well-meaning parent or a well-meaning uh, counselor at school. It needs to be direct therapy for as long as that child needs it. So that's kind of probably the most important piece. People can do a lot of studying on the ACEs study, adverse child effects studies. Um, they're about to redo it because it's about 25 years old right now, connecting trauma that people experience in childhood and what kinds of um, long-term consequences it had on their body. So we have to figure out how to prevent it in the first place, yeah. which it's preventable. Most child abuse is preventable. Yeah. Um, it's all intervenable if we would start talking about it. Yes. <laughs> and um, we can build that resiliency in kids. And if we don't, I think my message, Leah, is another heartbreaking one, is when I drive to work and I see um, all the folks that we have very visibly not living in homes right now, not yes. living in safe places, they're living on the streets. And it brings up a lot of emotions for me when I do that. But the one that gets to my heart is, what is their story? Yes. What did they experience as children that could have perhaps changed the path for them as they got to adulthood? Yeah. So I really feel like we would have an impact on some of the most visible things that we see as a community of, of the result of childhood trauma. Yes. Is folks that just don't, they, they don't, they didn't find the right support as they were going through their youth to recover. I'm not saying that everyone who's living that way mm -hmm. <laughs> experienced childhood trauma, but I suspect there's a huge proportion of them. I suspect you must be right. Mm -hmm. And I think what you're getting at, and you're going back to the, you know, the unfortunate thing that people look at dollar signs, it's, mm -hmm. it's not just the 
cost in terms of this is how much money it's costing us, there's also that opportunity cost. Because when you look outside your window and you see people that aren't in homes and they must also, still as adults, be in that space where their focus is not on that front frontal part of their brain, that prefrontal cortex. They can't be. They're too busy trying to survive. Survive. Mm -hmm. And so that's a whole lot of untapped potential. Absolutely. Thank you. And I think another, again, in prevention, I have the privilege of being a facilitator of conversations. Mm-hmm. I, I don't have, you know, a really in-depth background except in how to be an educator. <laughs> and so I kind of can excuse myself sometimes. But I think another simplistic way to look at it is children deserve mm-hmm. joyful, carefree, whimsical, and safe childhoods. Mm-hmm. And the numbers are saying to us, they're not all getting that. And those are the numbers we know about. Yes. Those are the ones that have actually been heard. Mm-hmm. On average, a child is, I don't know where the study is because somebody challenged me. I'm like, I need to find that study. We have the number seven in our brains at Liberty House mm-hmm. because the number seven represents the amount of times that a child tries to tell somebody they're not safe. And my heart breaks when I hear that because how many of those kids didn't even try seven times? After the first two times, they're like, it's too hard. I, I told a friend. I told my mom. My mom, you know, somebody said, oh, that didn't happen. You dreamed that. Or, mm-hmm. um, you know, yes, I think that did happen, but I'll make sure it doesn't happen again. Mm-hmm. Not the answer a child needs, so. No. What is the answer the child needs? So in the moment that you have a child who is actually saying mommy or daddy or auntie or teacher, Mm -hmm. something's going on and I don't know what it is. Just stop and believe every single word they say to you in that moment. Mm -hmm. That's the answer. Let's sit down and talk about this. Mm -hmm. Tell me more. Wow. Can you tell me a little bit more? Mm -hmm. How did that make you feel? Very simple. We don't want to ask any leading questions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we don't want to do that. But we, the, the very minimum thing of advice that we've been giving in our training is, in that moment, believe that child. Mm-hmm. That's all that matters because that's about the relationship between you and that child. Mm-hmm. The system, the DHS, law enforcement, Liberty House, we're going to work out the details. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's what that system's in place for, the best interest of the child. But in that moment, if they feel like they trust you enough, so imagine the bond. Mm-hmm that is created in that moment of a child sharing with you versus what happens when you that child feels dismissed in that moment. Mm-hmm. That opportunity for that bond to be strengthened has really been challenged. So it's, that what I'm getting from that is curiosity more mm-hmm. than anything. So even if, like, it's not even, oh, I'm assuming that this must be correct or I'm assuming right. it's not, it's the openness that mm-hmm. leads to that experience of compassion, mm-hmm. of tell me more. Mm-hmm. I. I I want to know more. Mm-hmm. And so then the, there's this sense of, oh, you find me valuable enough to dig further? That's yeah. like, okay, let's imagine, go. Imagine, just yeah. imagine this. And I think the other thing I want to interject here is, um, and then it's what do I do with that information uh-huh. as the adult in that conversation? What do I do? So the first thing you say is, I don't know what's going to happen, mm-hmm. but I'm going to be with you while we find out. Mm-hmm. You don't have to make promises to a child. In fact, we say do not make any, do not predict what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. So that adult in that moment has to turn off their brain, which we're humans, and we're going to be like, oh my gosh, this is, what am I hearing? Is this is going to be disastrous for the family, or somebody might be embarrassed, or 
maybe I'm not even hearing it wrong and I'm going to put something in motion that so we ask that people you know finish that moment with that child assure that child that you appreciate that they trusted you with that information you don't know what's going to happen but you know somebody that you can call and and, and get some help for this because we don't if you told me this I can tell you you want something different to happen mm-hmm. um, children are looking for problem solving a lot of kids will say don't tell and we don't want to validate that. We want to just say, well, tell me more, and then get to that place of like, okay, well, you know what? I, I know that you want this, 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 you're telling me this because you probably want something to change here, right? Mm-hmm. So I know somebody that I can call. Mm-hmm. And if they push, you might have to be that in that mandatory reporter mode of like, well, you know what? I have to call, but I'm not going to leave you. I'm going to be right here with you the whole time, mm-hmm. whatever is appropriate for the relationship. But I think then we have to really talk more and empower people to understand that if you don't call, mm-hmm. there's going to be, the, the if there's abuse, it's going to escalate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if that abuse is happening in, ha- in, in secret, like sexual abuse does, um, it is going to escalate and get worse. And that is going to set a, that kiddo on a path for a lot of hard stuff in the future relationally the risks go for them to end up in some very dangerous situations just statistically mm-hmm. so in that moment call the hotline mm-hmm. if and and just tell them what you experienced if you really are like no I can't do that I'm gonna I'm gonna break up a family mm-hmm. like I want to validate that feeling when somebody's having to make a report that's a that's a very natural feeling mm-hmm. put yourself number one in the shoes of that child who's not safe mm-hmm. that really will help you guide your decision and if you're really uncomfortable, contact me at Liberty House. We'll talk hypothetically. <laughs> <laughs> um, we offer that during our trainings. And I've had some people that have called and said, is this something I should call in? We'll talk through that situation. Again, they didn't tell me a name. So in that moment, <laughs> mm-hmm. we can just slow down. But we want to validate the reasons that we feel we shouldn't call. And we want to help you get through that because that child is the cost of you worrying about something that you read about in the news and Mm -hmm. it doesn't always work out that way in fact liberty house has exonerated some people that um you know when there's been a concern of abuse by a certain person Mm -hmm. um i don't want to even create a name a male or female you know person a (laughs) sure um and a child will come in and start um you know expressing what they've been experiencing and we will listen and listen and there have been times where we said Person A is not the person of concern in this. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have exonerated folks. So the, we, we serve mm-hmm. two purposes there. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, be able to recommend some counseling for that family because if a child is able to um, express something like that, is it happening by somebody else? Mm-hmm. Are they being exposed to something that they that planted that idea? We want some therapy to help manage that information too. Yeah, and I'm thinking of how much, the word that's coming to my mind right now is capacity. Mm -hmm. Uh, And what I mean by that is the capacity of the adults who are receiving this information. And, you know, you mentioned the pandemic and how we're all in unprecedented territory, uh, at least for us. It's not as though there has never been a pandemic, but this is the, this is a unique situation for all of us in today's time. Mm -hmm. And of course, the fires that happened and then and in Oregon, we have the ice storm. So there's just been a whole lot of and thens and mm-hmm, also's. Mm-hmm. And so it, mm-hmm. in my mind, I'm thinking of the trickle-down effect of this is traumatic for everybody. And so that's going to mean that all the adults whose capacity, wherever it would have been in an everyday sort of way, is going to be reduced. And so that would, in my mind, I imagine, increase the severity 
of child abuse because Mm -hmm. even if you might have parents who were disgruntled or and now suddenly Mm -hmm. you're seeing alcoholism or Mm -hmm. all of that so you know you had started to talk about the cost of the pandemic um, maybe we can speak a little bit about that. How yeah, and that? I haven't researched that because it's so new. Yeah, we're all still trying. We are, uh, we are, I'm collaborating with um, our Hope, Nita Grant is our clinic director at Hope and Wellness Services, our child and uh-huh. inf- our, our trauma informed counselors. We're creating a um, uh, workshop for parents mm-hmm. um, that we, we are partnering with Westminster Presbyterian. I don't think they'd mind me mentioning this. Uh, no, <laughs> um, Because not. our plan is to um, use that as our practice place and get it all, and then we can offer this mm-hmm. possibly through Salem Health. But the title is called, it's directed towards parents, and it's um, working uh, through a pandemic with your kids or something. I should, I should call you back and get the name of that. I mean, again, uh, with, when you're dealing with stuff that's this new, yeah. Makes sense. And so, but the whole workshop is set up. It's like we need to get some factual information in front of parents who are trying to raise their kids amidst all of this and understand what their kids are feeling through all this and yes. experiencing. So, need is there to provide, you know, some really trauma-informed clinical information on what we know about that. Um, and then we'll talk about, we'll break into groups and do some practice workshop stuff about what are you seeing with your own child? What are some tools that we can provide to you and how to address that? How do you get your kids talking about what they're experiencing? Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, the word capacity just is kind of rattling in my head right now because it's on so many levels. It's like, what capacity do we have as parents mm-hmm. to help navigate our kids while we are managing our own? We have parents that are, they lost their jobs, yeah. you know? or their job changed so much it's become much more stressful and so you know we're all trying to take care of ourselves and our kids so um, yeah I will get back to you on the name of that workshop because it's really it'll be really powerful and we will have when we do the workshops we will bring in there'll be about four of us facilitators to help those parents with those conversations and tools and then Mm -hmm. send them home and they'll come back for a second day um, that week and we can kind of debrief and unwrap and figure out what worked and where we need more help because that's really what we've dis- we've discovered in prevention education is we can provide a lot of information. You can tell mm-hmm. from me I could talk for hours mm-hmm. um, enthusiastically. <laughs> <laughs> um, and but if, if it's the actual practical application, and so how do we create more t- trainings where parents can come with other caregivers of their kids mm-hmm. and you know anticipate some scenarios, start some conversations. What are some conversation starters you could use to even mm-hmm. broach that? I've been a kid, and <laughs> yep. if my mom out of the blue came up to me and said, tell, tell me how you're doing, I'd be like, I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> fine, Mom. Yep. Are you sure? Yep. Uh-huh. <laughs> Is there anything you need? Nope. and move on and so um, we can laugh about that and also know that actually there are a lot of things our kids want to talk about we've got to figure out how do we get them into a place where they know we're the safe one to talk tell anything to Mm -hmm. if we haven't been practicing that from a young age right well, I know you mentioned that's a brand spank. It's sort of like in pilot mode, talk mm-hmm. not even really beta. It's almost <laughs> like mm-hmm. the pre-beta. Yes. Um, but what, are the, what programs are already in place uh, that as resources for parents? or Because mm-hmm. uh, I know that there have been some that are already, they're already flushed out and you're mm-hmm. providing it to the community. Yeah. So first of all, um, our, uh, we sort of have separate 
focus groups on who we deliver services to in a lot mm -hmm. of ways. So of course prevention services are available to anyone. Mm -hmm. Somebody who's being served by Liberty House or the clinic may or may not take one of our classes. We don't necessarily push that because imagine that you're in the throes of trying to sort out what your child has been experiencing and then somebody says, here, did you want to take a prevention <laughs> right, education? Yeah. So we're very, again, we just, we just honor what these families are experiencing that we serve in our clinic. Mm -hmm. But our prevention services just felt mandatory. We actually changed our mission statement to include prevention education in it um, mm -hmm. because we want to turn one of the wings of our building into a spa, quite honestly. We, we, we want to be out of a job. We want less staff needed in our organization. Mm -hmm. So our prevention education started with a grant from the Ford Family Foundation who mm -hmm. said um, who we were already doing a training called from an organization called Darkness to Light. Mm -hmm. um, there, they Ford family um, has uh, with this collaborative we're in have trained over thirty thousand people in a training called Stewards of Children and thirty thousand people in the state of Oregon. Oh, I need wow. to clarify in primarily rural areas. Uh -huh. um, so uh, that training is two hours, and it really helps give a perspective from, I want to talk about that because it's such a valuable training. Yes. For, there are eight adult survivors who talk about their experience of being sexually abused as children. And we would never ask children to explain that. We would never ask children about that. But these adults are able to do it in a very gentle way. So we do create, even virtually now, a, a, a space for, okay, I can hear this. I, you're not getting so detailed that I'm going to shut down because it's so hard on our heart. And it's hard on our brain. The words child sexual abuse, mm -hmm. three together, don't, don't go together. Oh, no. <laughs> Sometimes I get a lump in my throat when I say them even. so, um, it, And then um, those eight survivors sort of explain how it happened and what what the effect was for them so it really helps people comprehend that and then there's professionals in there also that um, kind of gives us some tips on how to minimize opportunities mm -hmm. how do we respond when a child discloses how do we react if if we hear if we have a suspicion um, and obviously there's some statistical factual information so we have about five programs that sort of all fit together under that darkness to light mm -hmm. we've developed some more trainings um, one is called let's talk where we use one of the videos from darkness light and added in our own questions where parents can practice how would they have the talk mm -hmm. with their kids and we practice that um, Tomorrow night, I'm doing a training called Cell Phones and Children Best Practices, um, which when I'm done with this question, I definitely want to talk about <laughs> I Respect and Protect. Um, we have other, so we have trainings for individuals to come. We have, mm -hmm. we'll custom create trainings for mandatory reporters to give them a refresher. Um, if they're that, or give them the whole mandatory training, we partner with DHS for that. Mm -hmm. um, we have, a, you know, the, we will basically talk to any group that wants to get some prevention education, so we'll custom create things. But we have a about seven trainings right now that we are really promoting that are tried and true. Um, give us a call. We could do it next tomorrow for a group <laughs> of 10 or more. We will be there and we can do everything virtually. We like, we prefer them in person, but we will continue doing them virtually after the pandemic in, in conjunction with in person. Cause some people have, they'll talk more in a virtual situation than they do in person. Yeah. It is interesting to consider. I, I do some coaching privately and I assumed when I was trained as a coach, uh, sort of wellness coaching, life coaching, that, oh, the telephone would be so impersonal, mm -hmm. um, so much more challenging to work with. And it turns out in many respects, it, it can be easier because people aren't constantly worried about how is this person seeing me? How is mm -hmm. my expression affecting mm -hmm. the how they're, you know, because often we do that mm -hmm. without even, you know, unconsciously. 
So it can be a boon in some cases to just feel like, oh, I'm in a safe space. You're not getting, you don't have to see my expression or you don't have to, like, I can just talk. And then when it's done, I just push a button and it's done. Mm -hmm. And in virtual, we've had conversations that people have shared things in the chat mm -hmm. format where they can truly oh, be nice. anonymous. And they're, for some reason, they are more comfortable with us reading that. And we, um, I've had some of the best and hardest trainings I've ever done in the last, mm -hmm. you know, three years in virtual settings, mm -hmm. um, it, it, which is fascinating. And I've also had some of the worst trainings because sure, sometimes yeah. you have people that are like, uh, I just, it's, I'm, and I know they're there because you cannot be not affected by what's there. And, you know, we get some kind of interaction, but there's like, no, I'm just going to be quiet and absorb this. I'm going to take care of myself while I'm learning all this. Mm -hmm. Um, and that we have to we have to acknowledge that I will add that because the Ford family was helping us with this they partnered with the University of Oregon um, to CPAN the Center for the Prevention Abuse and Neglect of Children mm. and so they did a study they were for pre-pandemic we were doing a pre and post survey with an 18-month opt-out longitude fo uh, phone follow-up to see <laughs> does this training make a difference you know and so they have evaluated probably close to 9,000 people in the state of Oregon wow. and what we learned was number one it's a really good training <laughs> um, number two um, that um, in that in that um, survey that there is such a higher number of people who can actually check a box that they identify as experiencing child sexual abuse than mm -hmm. we ever imagined mm -hmm. and um, that was astounding to me to learn how much pain there is out there in yeah. our community um, it validated our the need for our work <laughs> yes. um, and uh, and just that it helps us go forward much gentler and understand why sometimes we have people that just can't they want to be there mm -hmm. but they're not going to participate they're just not in a place where they want to talk about that there's other folks that um, are survivors that are quite comfortable talking mm -hmm. about their experience um, so I, I think that for me, it just took that there's, a, we all carry something with us. Mm -hmm. um, it, and and I, I hope it's not child sexual abuse, yeah. but it might be, but it could also be something else. And we just, it helps me um, quiet my voice when, during a training mm -hmm. and just sort of give that, um, you know, provide a facilitator experience where I'm not here telling you what to do. I'm here to help you find out what you want to find out. Yeah. Which is a really good thing for a person like me, you know, the hugger, the yes. the swim coach, the whatever. <laughs> it's like calm it down. <laughs> yeah, the the professional holder of the space. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And you mentioned the cell phone piece. You said I want to yeah. talk about that. Let's make sure I talk about mm -hmm. that. Yes. So I respect and protect. Mm -hmm. The thing that's so neat about that is this started as a community conversation in um, January 2018. Mm -hmm. Again, with those partners that I talked about earlier, law enforcement and children's services. We also included in the conversation youth organization leaders, business leaders, community lead, elected officials, educators, mm -hmm. parents, and youth. <laughs> the key is youth. Uh -huh. And the conversation started with, we're really concerned about the suicidal ideation Mm -hmm. um, or death by suicide amongst kids in what in what law enforcement was seeing quite honestly is this um, cell phone this tool with a camera mm -hmm. um, this sort of idea that we've we've come to say now three years later um, this transactional thing that happens with that phone which mm -hmm. is if I take a picture of some part of my body mm -hmm. <laughs> naked and send it to somebody they will love me or they will like me 
So one of our, our, our principles is love is not a transaction, but that is really narrowing it down to like, that's the extreme that we're trying to figure out. How can we address that? How can we address suicidal ideation, death by suicide in our teens? It may or may not be because of a cell phone, but that's what prompted the conversation for us is mm-hmm. that the, the law enforcement was seeing direct correlation. We also know there's cyberbullying, <laughs> there's sextortion, there's just online, there's an online world that when parents give their kids a cell phone, they really have no idea how their kids are going to use that cell phone to explore the world because mm-hmm. they're kids. Mm-hmm. And um, so three years later, we, with talking with all those groups, um, we created a website called mm-hmm. irespectandprotect.com. Mm-hmm. If you just Google I Respect and Protect Salem, Oregon, it'll lead right to the website. Mm-hmm. We created a resource that has um, uh, a resource for kids, for teens, for parents, for organizations mm-hmm. um, to help them how to navigate cell phones and have good conversations. Mm-hmm. And um, there's worksheets on, there's a there's a family uh, digital media contract that you can go through and kind of identify what are our values around phones? Mm-hmm. What are our family values around mobile devices and the internet? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we were tasked with creating this huge resource, and we did. Mm-hmm. It's, it happened because people kept saying, we need this, we need this, and we listened for almost three years and really hurt and that will always continue is figuring out what does the community want here yeah the last piece of that was when we were able to finally sit down with the kids and they were so powerful because at one point we thought we should just ban cell phones from schools that Mm -hmm. was a true conversation that we had and as a teacher i said yeah that's probably not gonna happen Mm. (laughs) um but um the kids were awesome they said we agree there's a problem with the phones Mm -hmm. No, they said, we agree that kids are getting hurt. Mm -hmm. We disagree that the problem is the phone. We don't need your help, but we'll help you prepare something for our younger brothers and sisters, which to me is such an interesting statement. Um, We don't need your help, but we know we could, what we know, what we've learned could help another kid. And finally they said, and this was the most poignant to me, we don't have a cell phone issue, we have a mental health issue. So we created, and we're in the finishing stages, we are trying, we think we're going to be able to pilot fully um, at the middle school level um, in a large local school district. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And um, we think, Um, but it's called My Worth, Uh and it it basically narrows down to our principles, which I'll shorten for here, but they are, you know, we are unique as human beings, and we all want to be liked and loved, and we do things to be liked and loved Mm -hmm. but we need to develop our our sense of worth and that's such a casual statement and so i what we say over and over again you leah have worth because you're here (laughs) you have a hundred percent worth because you're here Mm -hmm. and imagine a child hearing that simba heard it in the lion king (laughs) is that you are entitled to everything you dream about because you're here Mm -hmm. and we don't we, we we haven't figured out how to say that or we're just being reminded of something we always knew as parents we're just being reminded to say that more often and in that conversation then we can open up to um you know, you don't have to do anything to get somebody to like you. Right. They're going to like you because you are. And so, and you know what? Sometimes we do things to get people like, and we, we realize we made a mistake. Uh-huh. Who are you going to come to for that? Who's uh-huh. the safe person in your life? So our mission for I Respect and Protect is, I'm not going to remember it fully, but <laughs> it's, um, you know, to provide um, support for um, fostering self-worth, uh-huh. youth and families and communities to, you know, just uh, to... Um, 
Oh my goodness. Let me pause. Where's my, my brochure? <laughs> uh, fostering self-worth, supporting um, healthy online choices, and supporting safe relationships. Mm -hmm. That's good. Now. Yeah. Else you feel yeah. like. And well, so it's interesting that you say that the the kids are saying we don't have a cell phone problem; we have a mental health problem, mm -hmm. and so this is what we want to work on. I was listening to a presenter speak, and of course now I can't remember her name because that's life. <laughs> uh, but she was speaking about heroin. Hang in there with me. Um, <laughs> and she said that the opioid. Uh, challenge that we're facing right mm -hmm. now is directly linked with loneliness mm -hmm. and she talked about how the, the t t specifically in the brain what's going on when we feel lonely mm -hmm. and the special pang of that and how you can draw a direct line to how lonely a person feels how like, isolated and disconnected they feel and their inclination toward trying to self-medicate mm -hmm. in a very pragmatic way without unconsciously um, and then of course she's wasn't negating the fact that once that's in the picture, it becomes a problem. Mm -hmm. But it's it, it reminded me of this because from what I'm seeing and observing, and also in what I observe of myself, you know, I'm closer to 35 right now than, and I I was born in a generation where you I remember what it was. This. Yes, like I remember the corded phone mm -hmm. and the oh, you want privacy? That's cute. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I hope the cord is long enough. Mm -hmm. I remember phone books mm -hmm. and oh if you want to find something I remember encyclopedias like I remember these things and I also was fortunate enough to get exposed to technology at an early enough age where it's not utterly foreign I can use right. it and I'm seeing though when I turn around and see folks younger than myself who have they've there's just always been Facebook there has just always been Instagram or, mm -hmm. or some social media I shouldn't just pick on any one of them but cell phones have always been a thing and, you know, even when I talk to my niece and say, I know that this wasn't always a thing. Wow, Auntie Leah, you're, you must be old. Yes. <laughs> and in my mind, I'm thinking, yeah, thank God. <laughs> Dodge that bullet. Um, but I'm, so here's, I'll start with my experience because I don't want to just assume what other, mm -hmm. any kid's experience is. I was, you know, I, I will catch myself playing a game or engaged in something on the phone and I know when I'm engaged in it that I probably should stop because I have other things to do and yet I continue and I am living and breathing this stuff like I live and breathe behavior change as a mm -hmm. facilitator that's my role predominantly is to help other people navigate behavior change and I'm watching this thing unfold in myself and you know chuckling in the yeah. back of my mind and then I look to people younger than myself who this has been their whole world and there's, when I hear, no, we don't have a problem with cell phones, my first go-to response is, yeah, I can quit anytime I want to. I just don't want to. Mm -hmm. And yet I do also hear, just like in the opioid situation, that is a, just like right now, phones are a problem. We are in the adolescent yep. stages of this mm -hmm. thing, I think is the best way I've heard mm -hmm. it described. It's mm -hmm. a giant experiment. Mm -hmm. We have not figured out how to use this thing uh, effectively. Wisely. <laughs> yes, exactly. Like, yeah. we don't have discernment because we haven't had enough time with it to cultivate it. Mm -hmm. So that is the problem, just as drugs can be a problem yes. on their own. But I do really, I can understand where they're coming from when they say, yeah, but that wasn't the real problem. The real problem is I I don't have capacity, and that's why I don't have discernment. Yeah, and just to piggyback off the um, heroin addiction thing uh -huh. with our cell phones, um, 
you know, we see, I'll go through the grocery store and I'll see parents mm -hmm. pushing their kids in a cart and their kids have their cell phones. Mm -hmm. And you know what, as a parent, I get it. Their children yes. not, their child isn't screaming. Their child is not saying, I want that. There's that pretty color, I want that. Mm -hmm. They're not having a tantrum, they're calm. And what I tell parents in our training is they're also not singing. They're not interacting with you. They're not counting how many yellow boxes that we see. Yeah. So we, you know, we need to teach our parents who didn't grow up mm -hmm. with cell phones just to have, you know, we need another sense about this. And yeah. so one of some of the readings, and again, apologies, I don't have it. In fact, it's on our website, our, mm -hmm. all these articles, is that when we give our kiddos at a very young age that mm -hmm. game that they're watching on their phone, or their whatever electronic device, there's a dopamine effect, mm -hmm. which is exactly what is leading to, is connected to all these addictive, um, yes. you know, things that are happening. Like I knew, like heroin, oh yeah, okay, it's the dopamine. Mm -hmm. Because if they're, 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 their brain is telling me, their body, this is a happy place for me to watch Simba on my screen. And it's not a bad thing, but when they're doing that all the time, mm -hmm. or without somebody else giving them other boundaries of a balanced life, uh -huh. <laughs> that they're going to continue to want more. And unfortunately, when your kids get that phone in their hand, the, the um, algorithms, the formulas that are built into the systems here, mm -hmm. watch the um, social network, they're going to continue to feed that. That's why we have kids that will watch YouTube videos for seven and a half hours. Mm -hmm. um, and I will, I will go there. The, the, one of the hard things that we see at Liberty House <clears throat> is, so here's the story. This, there's a lighthearted story. When I was as old as you need to be to learn how to use the dictionary, mm -hmm. <laughs> notice I said use the dictionary. We would have said that. <laughs> Look things up in the dictionary. Yes. I looked up things that made us giggle. So, of course, I went to the dictionary and looked up S-E-X. I looked up sex. Uh -huh. And I got there and it was some big words. And I tried to understand that. And I'm like, well, that's pretty much what mom and dad said it was. I'm going to go out and play in the street now. Uh -huh. That was my childhood. <clears throat> well, I looked up the other words that made us giggle also. <laughs> sure. <laughs> and so now imagine a child who's to that point where they understand how to spell S-E-X. And they're going to put that into the search line of their phone or their Kindle or whatever it is that hooks up to the Internet. And the answer is not going to be long dictionary definition. They're going to get a video. And they're going to watch that video because they're kids. <laughs> mm -hmm. And they're going to go, wow, so that's what sex is. And I have this explanation in my head that sex, you know, whatever mom and dad said about sex or whatever their caregivers said about sex, suddenly they have this visual of what that is. Well, mm -hmm. I haven't put in SEX into a Google search because I'm too afraid, to be quite honest. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because what I understand from other professionals is that the pornography that's available online is, is very graphic, it's mm -hmm. violent, um, it's horrific if you think about an eight-year-old watching it. Mm -hmm. So if, an, if a child has been watching pornography since they were eight, Mm -hmm. And then they get to sixth grade and they, are, they have an idea about relationships. I'm going to have my first love interest. Mm -hmm. Of course, they're not going to hesitate to go, hey, send me a picture of your body part. Uh -huh. Because they, they kind of got that idea because of what they've been watching. Mm -hmm. So if we aren't the person, the resource to guide them through that or have a discussion after you realize your child has watched pornography on their phone mm -hmm. or your phone, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, just and, and let's have it in a brain that's an innocent exploration from a child. Yes. But uh, much of what we see, about two-thirds of what we see at Liberty House are, is sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. and, and more and more we are seeing some very violent things that is youth on youth mm -hmm. um, in a sexual manner. And so um, we cannot help but think 
there's a correlation here with the amount, the availability of pornography. And again, without guidelines, kids are going to continue to explore. And I don't mean to dismiss what, uh, you know, that, you know, what we're seeing, Mm -hmm. but we need to get ahead of this. We need to get to the top of the waterfall, I think is what somebody told me once. (laughs) Yeah, it's an excellent analogy. And when thinking about, because I'm also thinking of the social dilemma, the Mm -hmm. um, documentary, what, what I loved about how they sort of broke this down was the way it escalates. So as an example, I might start as a uh, Trump supporter who's looking up, I don't know, just something very neutral and uninteresting mm-hmm. about Trump. Mm-hmm. And then the, the algorithm says, well, if you like that, you might also like. Right. And that's maybe some, maybe it's one of the worst things President Trump has ever said. And it's like, whoa, mm-hmm. I didn't realize he said that. And then it's like, well, if you like that, you might also like. And then before you know it, all of a sudden, mm-hmm. I'm listening to mm-hmm. some, you know, I don't know, I'm, I'm looking at articles or videos of Hitler. And it's like, how did I go, I mean, how did I get from there whatever to there? your feelings mm-hmm. are about Trump, those are two very different mm-hmm. human beings. And mm-hmm. the same goes for the other side of the spectrum. So it's like, I might start by, I want to watch a speech from Obama. And all of a sudden, I'm listening to someone who's about, like talking about down with the government and revolution. And it's like, those are two very different. Very different. And so to think that that, because what we're, the algorithms are trained to, to do mm. is keep us watching. Yep. It's not, the algorithm isn't trying to manipulate us into villainous, you know, ways. It's just, we want to keep you watching. And the statistics show that what is it that keeps our attention? rage or activation Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so naturally the same thing would happen with sex where maybe the the, the most innocent of exploration because Mm -hmm. of course the kid would want to know about sex absolutely like oh no you just said something that made um, like all of the adults uncomfortable naturally i'm gonna find out all about yes because that's just how (laughs) that works hey this sounds like good stuff if they all told me not to talk about it obviously i need to know all the things (laughs) and so maybe even the very first image that comes up is Maybe a parent, even if it were pornography, mm-hmm. would see it and go, eh, I mean, mm-hmm. it's kind of tacky, but mm-hmm. whatever. But the problem is, if you like that, you might also like, and then that's where you go down the train mm-hmm. where suddenly they're, they, and when you think about how that plays with the brain and dopamine, how we would be drawn to increasing amounts of, you know, an escalation yeah. because we like that activation. And so then, yeah, by the time we are in a position where we're going to be active, it makes sense that you would start to see more violence mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. because our brains have been trained to seek that out. Right. And it's wild to imagine that that would be a thing. But when you really break it down into how brains work, it starts to make a lot of sense. Yeah. And I mean, I've had conversations like that with parents that they're wrestling with this, you know, well, I learned, I learned about sex because I found magazines, you know, if they're of that generation. And so they, it's human nature, you know, Mm -hmm. to just kind of go, well, you know, I can't talk to them. Nobody talked to me about it. I figured it out this way. This is the new way. And that's why we just want to open that conversation up to understand. I'm not promoting that people go explore on the internet so they understand, but just just listen, be open to hearing what your children are seeing is way different, mm-hmm. and there's nothing to help them unwrap it uh, with. And so I had a conversation with someone in my family who, you know, this happened, you know, the young young child explored, mm-hmm. and the conversation at, at, towards the end, I said, well, are you mad because your seven-year-old explored this, or are you mad because you didn't 
know it <laughs> or that it's available. <laughs> and so that was part of, again, we're not here to tell people what their values should be. Mm-hmm. That, is not, that is not our job in our prevention services or as a facilitator. Our job is to, is to get you to pause and go, do you know what your values are? Right. And spend some time on figuring out that what they are for the sake of your children. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I was with Patrice Altenhoff. She's the uh, executive director of Family Building Blocks. She, we were in a meeting together, and she shared something. We all got choked up, and she said, it, it, uh, for your folks that are listening, the Family Building Blocks is the relief nursery in town, and so they do a lot of parenting classes for and serve um, families with children zero to age five mm-hmm. to prevent abuse from happening. There, Our goals are very similar, mm-hmm. and uh, so I, I always like to give a plug <laughs> for, <laughs> for other agencies, but she said, you know, we meet a lot of families in the hospital when they deliver. Um, sometimes we are introduced to the family at that point to maybe see if perhaps we can help support them in the early ages of their child. Great. Just, we've never Never met a family who didn't start off just wanting to be a great family. Right. That, of course, that's our intention. We deliver this beautiful baby, and we just have all these hopes and dreams, as you should. Right. And so, how much can we support that and help you get information maybe you didn't have when you were being parented, mm-hmm. or you're in the middle of a pandemic, let's say, and you somebody doesn't have the same income that they had before? How can we provide resources when we talk about what does a world look like? to get ahead of this. Mm-hmm. How do we work together? What does a community that focuses on prevention look like? Mm-hmm. It's knowing what other organizations do and directing folks that need those resources. And yeah, yeah like this is such a long conversation. Yes. It can go many ways. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, and at the end, at the heart of it is, ultimately, I think all, we are all children. Play pretending at adults. Mm. You know, I, we're all innocent at the core. I mean, mm-hmm. with very rare exceptions, you know, and even in the exceptional cases, if you, it's often down to the wiring in the brain. And so, mm-hmm. you know, it, I think it's easy to villainize whoever mm-hmm. might be a predator and hurting mm-hmm. children because mm-hmm. it's abhorrent. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, you then need to turn around and say, what happened to you? Mm-hmm. That, mm-hmm. you know... It, it's important to imagine that there are children all over right now that are suffering during Mm -hmm. a pandemic Mm -hmm. and who don't feel like they have people around them who are supporting them. But then you have to turn around and look at the adults. They're also children who are Mm -hmm. scared out of their minds Mm -hmm. and, you know, Mm -hmm. going, I don't know what to do either. And I would love to be the kind of parent who takes the phone away and has a present conversation. But I don't know if you know this, but my brain and prefrontal cortex is also turned off. Yes. And I'm also really struggling. And so to have a human out there who can also turn to the adults Mm -hmm. and say, you know, I, I even... I was talking to a very close friend of mine, and she was sobbing on the phone with me. And she said, Leah, I'm a horrible mom. And I've got to tell you, any person who says the words, I'm a horrible parent, it's just ipso facto can't be. Mm -hmm. Because horrible parents don't consider Mm -hmm. the fact that they might be. Right, right. But she said, I yelled at my kid. I did. I said, well... Was your kid being a jerk? <laughs> and she, it was a moment of repeat, reprieve where she laughed a little and you're choking through the laughter. And she said, well, yeah, a little, but no kid should be yelled at. And he said, well, have you ever looked at a mama dog with her pups? Sometimes you need to be able mm-hmm. to say this is a boundary. Mm-hmm. And I bet you your son now knows that he was being a jerk and he mm-hmm. hit a boundary. Mm-hmm. And, you know, how much sleep have you had? Have you eaten? (laughs) Are you okay? And the minute she says, no, I haven't eaten. I haven't done this. And I'm exhausted. And it's like, kids just need to know you love them at the end of the day. 
and so do we. So it's wonderful to think that there's someone also looking out for mm-hmm. the parents of the kiddos mm-hmm. and turning and saying, this is the hardest, just to kind of yeah. circle back to where we yeah. started. This is the hardest thing you're ever going to do. Mm-hmm. You're, there's no chance you're doing it right or doing it perfectly. Mm-hmm. Um, another friend of mine said it, I think the best I've ever heard. She said, my goal as a parent is to provide as many resources to my child as I can so that he will have enough wits about him to pay for his own therapy. <laughs> That's so cute. That's so cute. <laughs> that was brilliant. She said, there's no chance I'm getting out of this thing without, you know, leaving scars because yeah. I'm, I'm too much of a, you know, I've got too many issues or challenges of my own. Right. I, I'm imperfect. Mm-hmm. But hopefully, <laughs> hopefully he will have enough resources to get it together and find help all by himself. Yeah, yeah. and I think one thing we haven't mentioned often enough here is, you know, if you if you have survived something traumatic in childhood mm-hmm. or adulthood, but particularly children, they carry a lot of shame mm-hmm. and a lot of guilt about what happened, which is another reason they don't talk about it. Mm-hmm. And so when we provide those um, convers- places for those conversations to happen. We have to be really careful mm-hmm. that we phrase things in a way that allows us to let go of whatever shame or guilt that we're carrying because of something that somebody else did to us. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's really hard, and I and and I think that it's you know it's I think that's why I so embrace these opportunities to talk mm-hmm. because when you hear somebody you le- and, and 14 different people could say the exact same things mm-hmm. but the same person might hear only hear one of those people's voice because of the tone in their voice or whatever it was like okay that person feels safe to talk to mm-hmm. <laughs> that space does feel safe and so we just have to keep saying like how do we create spaces mm-hmm. for us to learn how to let go of our shame and guilt of what somebody else did to us mm-hmm. that's going to make me the best parent for my child possible and just be that one resource for them. So I think those are just really reoccurring themes that we want to offer in all the things we've talked about today, you know, whether it be an experience of kiddos that come to Liberty House or kiddos that our newest thing, which is using cell phones and they go, I um, took a picture Mm -hmm. (laughs) and do we approach that of, well, you know, you just committed a crime or do we approach that of, Tell me more about that. Mm-hmm. How are you feeling right now? Do you feel safe right now? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. You know, who are you talking to about that besides me who I'm not m- one of your family members? Let's talk about that, you know. Mm-hmm. And so that's the place where we're trying to get is creating a place that people can go for a resource, figure out, I made a mistake. Mm-hmm. I have a problem to solve. <laughs> yeah. Who the heck do I go to to talk about that? Is it, yeah. you know, so that those are... Big challenges. I'm a total optimist. At the, <laughs> see, the optimist pumps through my veins, <laughs> and so we just keep trying. <laughs> just keep listening. Mm-hmm. Yes. Any other closing remarks or things you would really want folks to walk away with? Um. Oh, I always have the hardest time with this because you can tell I'm a talker and like, what was my? Yeah, <laughs> me too. <laughs> what was my thing? Um, I think. Um, Today, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, we need to re- remember what it was like for us to be kids. Yeah. And we don't often find those people we feel entirely safe to talk to. And so we as the adults have to learn to be the voice for those children. Mm-hmm. And there's more children out there that are not safe than we really want to believe. Mm-hmm. And so let's kind of, that's my call to, call to action, mm-hmm. is just hold close those children in your life. 
in a way that makes it safe for them to trust you um, and, and tell you what's going on in their lives. That's beautifully said. Mm. And I just want to say thank you so much for your work, mm. for everything you're doing. And of course, thank you for coming here today. Cause Such a treat. <laughs> it's a treat for me. I just get to sit back and listen to someone brilliant talk for Oh, I don't know about brilliant. <laughs> I'm a hard worker, and I really love my, I'm very passionate. I really love my